Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome along to Writer's Routine. Today we're chatting to the journalist, the author and broadcaster, Tim Marshall. Now Tim spent some time as the diplomatic editor and foreign affairs editor for Sky News and he's found a recent success for his book, Prisoners of Geography. Uh, it's a non-fiction work, it's all about how you can like predict political situations around the world, times of war, times of crisis and the current state of flux that we're in, just by looking at a map and seeing what's important. It's been hugely successful, it sold around a million copies, and Tim talks about how the first idea for the story came over 20 years ago. Also, we'll find out how writing TV news bulletins helped him get this book done, and you can find out what he, as a non-fiction author, can learn from a novelist. The only other thing that I know I do, unlike when I speak, is that I do try to, I do write in short sentences. And that I learnt from a fiction writer, Hemingway. I mean, the master of writing short sentences with up to three levels of meaning in them. I mean, a brilliant fiction writer. If you want to know how to get convey a lot of meaning into a short sentence, he's the guy. So stay there. It's all on the way on this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello, welcome along. This is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a little peek inside the working day of an author to steal some of the secrets of their scheduling success. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. And also, thank you so much if you've taken the time to write into us recently. I, I can't tell you how much it means. We've had so many uh, incredible notes coming into the show over the last few weeks if that's messages through the website at writersroutine.com or if it's the tweets or the dms through instagram i, I honestly I, I'm, I'm almost speechless which isn't good for someone who makes a podcast i just really appreciate them all uh, if you are enjoying what we do right now though can i point you towards another way of thanking us over on the itunes podcast store because it means loads that really is the best place where you can help out the show get on there Find Writer's Routine and leave us a quick review. Just a few words. Leave your name to say, leave your name on there so I can say hi in the next few weeks. Five stars as well would be utterly fantastic. And if you haven't subscribed, subscribe. 
uh, because then all the new episodes will be directly downloaded to however you're listening to us. No faff from you needed. Uh, and, it, and it all helps people who could use the advice from the authors on this show get the advice because it helps out with the podcast chart. I promise it's so easy. It takes barely a minute of your day. Uh, just do it. It'll really help us out. Leave Writer's Routine a review over on the iTunes podcast store. So today's guest is Tim Marshall journalist, author, broadcaster, a hugely successful career as a broadcast journalist uh, across the telly and on radio. He's lived all over the world to get a story. Geopolitics is kind of his thing. He's won journalism awards for his coverage of the Middle East, and he also has written one of the most highly regarded accounts of life in the former Yugoslavia in Shadow Play, The Overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic. Uh, You'll hear more about that and life over there in the chat in the next few minutes. He's also received massive recent success with Prisoners of Geography. It's part of a trilogy which looks at how different aspects of nationalism affect the world. Everything from place to flags to walls and how it all affects the the politics of our identity. That's mostly what this interview is all about. So it's not the usual sorts of chats that we have with fiction writers and all about plotting and and, and coming up with ideas like that. It's about the research and about planning and about quite big theory in it, actually. But I promise, stick with it. You will get something out of this that will help your day to day work. Also, we've got a top writing tip from an Irish crime award winner in just a sec. And in a little bit, something very ridiculous. Uh, But you can help me become the actual Christmas number one in the UK music charts and everything. Uh, Seriously, uh, this is actually happening and you can help out with it. It's on the way. First, let's get into things with Tim Marshall and find out what he sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I call that the corridor of power. Um, insofar as I've got a desk in it, but it is actually a corridor. When I did a loft extension, um, the, you know, the bit where the staircase comes around, I've put a desk there, but it, so it is essentially a corridor. So it's the corridor of power. Um, and uh, in front of me is my Mac, as <laughs> big a one as possible to be able to split the screen when I'm researching stuff. So I've got, you know, things I'm writing, things I'm looking at. Uh, festooned my walls with uh, my... Uh, year planner, um, which is pretty much based, forgive me, around the Legion United fixture list. I'm a home and away season ticket holder. So someone emails and says, could you give a talk at X? And my first, in- I just look at the wall chart. Where are we playing? I'll get back to you. Uh, behind me, <clears throat> a large bookcase. And uh, out to my right, a window uh, out of which I gaze for far too long sometimes. Uh, talk to me about the view outside the window. What can you see? It's just an ordinary suburban street. Um, you know, there's not a great deal to, to distract me. And I'm always looking for distractions. The, the, I do do a fair bit of um, research and, and internet research and writing and phone calls from there. But I probably 50% of it is also done at, at my real office, which is called Gale's Cafe. Uh, which is on my local high street. And seriously, I, I, I probably spend 70 or 80 pounds a week in there. But for that, I get coffee, croissants, a desk. I get Wi-Fi. It's warm in there. There's people I know come in to distract me, which I like. Uh, anything rather than, you know, doing it. And so rather than spend... £150 a week on a glass box in some industrial estate or even in some high street, I'd much rather sit in a cafe and work. 
What's Gail's finest delicacy? Um, I'm very partial to a pano chocolat of a morning. What I've, what I've, I've spoken to a few authors um, who work in cafes, yeah. they see that as their office, and I'm always interested in the guilt. <laughs> how, how long into your time there do you feel, mm. I should probably buy another pano chocolat and a coffee? Yeah, I, I, uh, well, I've got over that. I did, I did suffer from that guilt for quite some time. Uh, I do think there's a limit, and it's got to be... You've got to be coming in under two hours, I think. But, you know, four hours in a cafe is probably enough. And a couple of coffees and a croissant, well, at Gail's prices, bless them, you know, you're up to a tenner. It's okay. And and also, um, I'm not there at the really, really busy times uh, because it's just, it's bedlam. Um, so, you know, I don't feel that guilty. And also, because I'm, I'm there seriously almost every day at some point, if only for half an hour or four hours, I know most of the staff, you know, first name terms. And in fact, I keep joking, they should really put a blue plaque up behind <laughs> where I usually sit. <laughs> um, let me very quickly just continue to touch on the room that you write in, if that's okay. Sure, what sure. have you got? Uh, so, art on the walls, what, what have we got? To my left, I have my RTS award from years back when I was a, a, a news reporter. Uh, I've got a, a picture of Milosevic, but it's, it's, his, it's from, he's walking away from the camera. And um, it's, it's a, it's, it was taken by a Serbian photographer friend of mine. And it, it, he hadn't resigned, but it was published and everybody, everybody kind of knew what the message was. Not resigned, overthrown, I should say. You're on the way out. And around about the same time, there was a thing called Gotovje, which means he's gone or he's finished. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't translate exactly, but this became the slogan of the push to try to get Milosevic of Yugoslavia, Serbia, uh, to go. And it was a brilliant slogan because it just said, he, 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 because he's gone and he's finished was sort of the same thing. Uh, and so I've got that Gotovje poster framed underneath it with him walking away. Because that was a seminal moment for me, you know, the whole Yugoslavia stuff. It kind of brings to mind, the, as a, as a football fan, the famous Set Blatter <laughs> photo. Do you remember this one when, when yeah. the, the corruption all became very clear and there's that brilliant photo of him exiting stage right, isn't it? They do say a thousand words. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's so many brilliant photos that sum up everything. But one that just sprang to mind in a British context was the when Gordon Brown uh, had accused that woman of being a bigot. He's, he's in the studio. I think it was Radio Sheffield. I can't really remember. But he's in the studio. And there was a photographer outside looking through the glass window. And they played back to him what she was saying about him. And at that moment, he put his head in his hands and... That was it. There was the <laughs> there was the vote gone. Um, yeah, they they are brilliant. Um, sometimes photographers know what they're doing. Sometimes they just catch it. As a journalist yourself, I mean, those kind of moments, it must be what you dream of. Yeah. You, you know, um, the moment when it's played back to him and everyone can hear, it and that Gordon Brown has, to effect, lost that election yeah. on that moment. I, 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 there are those few moments. Um, I mean, forgive me. Um, this isn't patronising you, it's, it's fact. We are of different generations. But you might remember or have heard of the Gerald Ratner moment. Uh, he said his products, Ratners, were crap. And I was there uh, that day. We were just, you know, run-of-the-mill, you know, rather boring business story. It was at the Albert Hall, I think it was their annual conference. And in the middle of it, he suddenly said, well, why do people buy our stuff? Because it's crap. And the journalist said, What? You know, boom, I mean, there's your headline. And uh, his company 
very rapidly went downhill and he very rapidly resigned. You know, moments like that, you just think, oh, there's the story. Well, the routine is often, I get up and I go out for breakfast. I mean, it's such a luxury uh, to have someone bring you something and then take it away um, after you've finished it. Uh, even if you do have to pay for that privilege, it's, it's great. I just, I just cannot bring myself to make myself coffee, tea and toast in the morning. Uh, now, obviously it costs, but I've been fortunate enough recently to you know, sell one or two books and um, that's less of a worry. So that is a routine. I'll either bike up to the high street or, or walk up. And then I'll either go on to something, uh, to a, you know, a, a school if I'm giving a talk there or occasionally go off to do an interview um, or, I'll, or, I'll, or I'll come back and start ploughing through emails um, because as a non-fiction writer, I'm still, I'm still ploughing through... Uh, you know, I subscribe to various current affairs and international relations websites, and you know, I, I do have to get across them all to to keep riding that wave, not of headlines, but that wave of the underlying things that are going on across the world. So I subscribe to all sorts of websites from different parts of the world, and I don't necessarily read all the articles, but I certainly read I, I read a sort of presse of them or the headlines. Um, does that ever become just very quickly? Is it a bit boring for you now? No, no, no. It's never boring. Um, it's sometimes challenging to keep up, but it's no, it's never boring. Most arcane little things. I think ah, you know, I'll just I'll read something about country X has just uh, reopened a border crossing with country Y, and it's it's a it's a minor little story. It's a paragraph. I'll give you an example. Last week. Minor little story, Jordan opened a border crossing with Syria. But what that actually means is so much more than that one paragraph they've opened. It It means that the Jordan government has said to itself, okay, the game's up, Assad's staying, government-to-government negotiations, uh, back to where we were five years ago. There's so much behind what looks like a tiny little story, which is why I try and keep across all these what look like small stories because they're all connected to the bigger stories. Oh, I'm just interested in this. We'll get back to the routine, although there isn't one in just a sec. No, there isn't. Does that mean if you're, if you're kind of keeping across world trends and does that give you a chance of possibly predicting what is going to happen? For uh, instance, did you see yeah. Brexit and Trump yeah. happening before they happened? Brexit I predicted and uh, wasn't surprised, partly because I go to football so much. Um, Trump, I said, I, I said Hillary would win narrowly. So I was wrong, but only a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because the, the predictions were that she would absolutely yeah. landslide it. I thought she would win narrowly. I, I got that one wrong. Um, I mean, you can't get them all right. If, you, if you're getting six out of ten right, you're doing pretty well. Because we are guessing anything about, you know, it's, it's like a horse race. It's a guess. Um, if you get seven out of ten, you, you're doing pretty well. So other things... Um, I absolutely saw the sheer wave of uh, coming in the Middle East. Uh, I I saw that coming through travels in the Middle East uh, and the Iranians seeing an opportunity to push their version of the world. Um, There have been others. um, but, But at a different level to that question, you can also 
partially predict things through geopolitics, and by that I mean the actual geography of it. I knew that the Russians, no, I guessed rightly that the Russians would invade and annex Crimea. Because when you know the geography of Russia, you know how important that port is to them in Sebastopol in Crimea. It, it is an existential matter for them. And so when Ukraine flips, you know that this existential matter will force any Russian leader to annex Crimea. So you can predict it. Um, and I'll give you another example. I know <laughs> the future. No, I know that if there is a scenario in the future, I know what will happen from that scenario. And here's the example. If uh, India cut the water supply to Pakistan, because it flows through their part of Kashmir that they control, there will be a war. Without any question, because that is an existential matter because of geography. So when you know that sort of terrain stuff, you can actually predict some events. So you're almost seeing five dominoes down the line when the first one has been pushed. You're able to figure yeah. out more or less. Well, and, and again, it's also when you, when you can see those five dominoes, when the first one falls, um, you know, that the, uh, country X suddenly challenges the treaty that has held for the last five years. You think, oh... Well, what happens if that treaty does get renegotiated or somebody does do that and then does do that? And you know what, when it comes to the point of the existential matter, there will be conflict. Another example would be uh, Egypt and Ethiopia. If Ethiopia did dam the Nile to the extent that the water flow to uh, Egypt was massively reduced, which would put the 85 million Egyptians lives in danger there will be a war without any question so you know you, you can use geography to to give you a clear indication of what can happen i've done five books uh and you know thousands of articles some of them you know long, fairly long form i'm never ready until i've got a, a, a clear idea of what i want to say at the beginning going through the middle and to the end I mean, that's obviously not a lot like fiction. I mean, as I understand it, some fiction writers, uh, you know, have a very vague idea, but they, I mean, how, how wonderful. They're actually telling themselves the story as they go along and, and they, they veer off and sometimes they do things they didn't know they were going to do. That's, that's wonderful. That, that's so creative. I'm not like that at all. Um, I will have arrived at my um, concept Furthermore, I, I, at book level, I have to break it down into the sections. Okay, I, you know, at the beginning, I am going to do this, and these, this chapter will be the introduction in which I will sum up. The first chapter will be this, because I think it's the one that's the best example of everything I'm trying to say. I will then turn to this country, if you were doing it chapters by country, because there is this overlap with what came before, da 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 da, da until you get to the end. Uh, only when I've done that structure, when I've built that road, or if you like a road map, at that point I will sit down and write the first word. <laughs> and that to me is the hardest. Uh, it was the same when I was in television, even with a two minute or two minute 30 report. Um, forgive me, I, I was actually quite a good writer for television news. Um, there is a real skill to it, which is not to put down what you're seeing. I mean, people do that, you know, this red car arrived on this road. Yeah, I can see that. You know, there is a real skill to it. Uh, and forgive me, I, I was quite good at it. 
But I, I couldn't, it, I sometimes used to just stare there for sort of five, ten minutes and you've got a bulletin with 50 minutes left and think, where do I start? What am I going to say? But the moment that I've got that structure and then that first sentence goes down, I am off. I'm off and running. Uh, at that point, it becomes easier. What do you think it was about, what do you think it is about prisoners of geography that made it catch on in, to such an extent? Yeah, I thought about that a lot a couple of years ago once it, once it really accelerated and, and went into the top 10. And I'm pretty confident that it's because we are in, in what I call the age of uncertainty. Uh, I mean, these are slightly cliches because all ages are ages of uncertainty. You know, there's never really a completely solid time when you're on solid ground. But compared to the past 50 to 70 years, I think things are more fluid than they've been. We had a bipolar world, then we had a unipolar world with the states, briefly, and now we are in this multipolar world, which has come about at the same time, uh, uh, the 2008 crash, the acceleration of technology and the mass movement of peoples. So they've all started swirling around and an awful lot of people are thinking, whoa, you know, what's going on? Now, obviously, I don't know what's going on, uh, nor do I know exactly where it's going. But I do think that the what I try to do is to put some context into why it's swirling around. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't help you that it doesn't stop it swirling, but it gives you uh, hopefully a, a foundation of understanding, right? You know, this is why all this stuff's going on. I realized there was um, a, t a template, and I don't mean, you know, I've just copied, but I, I realized that this structure of chapter one is about Russia. Russia. Chapter two is about China. Chapter three is about this. And I realised that, um, I mean, uh, I'm not a postmodernist by any stretch of the imagination, nor do I like people like Michel Foucault, or the French uh, philosophers, and all that sort of deconstructionism. Um, I think it is in the human nature to want to start at the beginning, get to the middle, and then go to the end. And um, it's a bit old-fashioned of me, I know, but... So, I, I, again, with, with flags, I realised that the geography structure had certainly helped me to have a narrative flow. And so, right, how am I going to now group? I've got 193 nation-state flags, for example. Then I've got other flags like the Jolly Roger. And then I've got flags like the Hezbollah flag, um, the ISIS flag. You know, how do I make sense of these? And so firstly, it was geographic. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go through Europe. I'm going to go th then another chapter on Africa, another chapter on Latin American flags, because they, they are different. They do s say things obviously germane to the geographical region. And there are groupings of flags as well. And for example, the South American, Latin American flags are quite different to the African flags. And that, that I... I wrote that I believe it's because of the different um, experiences of colonialism. So I was beginning to group it like that. And then there were the, um, the I forget I forget the chapter, the, what we called it. It was almost flags of fun, but um, it wasn't that. But, you know, like the, the Olympic flag, where did that come from? What does it say? Some of the great stories about the athlete that stole the very first one because he, he ran up the flagpole on the very last night. 
uh, stole it and it disappeared for 70 years and then he unveiled it <laughs> 70 years later. The American uh, long jumper, I think he was from, maybe a high jumper from, uh, from memory. Um, so again, I just think that those structures allowed people to follow uh, f- things. You know, it, it's, it's bite-sized chunks of information inside, um, think of a terrible metaphor, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We'll be back with more from Tim Marshall in just a sec, and we'll get a top writing tip that may change the way you work forever next. First, um, this is serious, by the way. Uh, I want to tell you about something just hilariously ridiculous and brilliant incredible um you know in the uk right the christmas number one in the music charts like it's a big deal we've had band-aid slade rage against the machine a few years ago and last year do you remember ed sheeran he bagged it with perfect which sold eighty-three thousand copies think about that eighty-three thousand. on the face of it doesn't seem that many so a group of us podcasters we've all banded together and we're trying to become this year's Christmas number one. Seriously, it's all to do with like podcast guru Ollie Mann. Uh, he's from the hugely successful Answer Me This, and he now does uh, The Modern Man as well. And with his podcast team, and with the help of like proper songwriters, a, a guy that made hits for One Direction, he's written a proper Christmas song. It's called Sounds of Christmas, and it features loads of the best British podcasters around, from us uh, to the Beef and Dairy Network, to the Two Shot Podcast, to the Comedian's Comedian, and all the proceeds go towards Samuel's Charity, which helps kids who are underfunded in children's wards, in hospitals all around the country, have a better standard of life. The idea is a simple one. If the best shows in the UK team up, and if they pull their audience together, we should have a slight chance of getting more than 83,000. Because cumulatively, 
We must all have more listeners than that, I I think. We might actually be able to get the proper Christmas number one. Uh, At least get us into the charts with Sounds of Christmas and Pod Aid for 2018. Uh, I've got a sneak clip of it actually for you now. And if you live in the UK, I'd love for you to get involved, for you to help us out. Just imagine if a bunch of podcasters properly hack the charts. Have a listen to this. Uh, Treat it with the very much tongue-in-cheek spirit, which it deserves. This is Sounds of Christmas. So there you go. Uh, utterly bizarre. A load of nonsense, I know, but it can help an amazing cause. It's called Sounds of Christmas. It's just so much fun. All the proceeds go towards charity. Stream it, buy it if you can. That's the best way to help us out. And then you can help us like win the battle of podcasts versus songs. Which one is better? You can decide. Right, let's get back to actual serious business, the reason why we're all here. Today's writing tip uh, that may change the way you work forever. It's from Liz Nugent. She's an Irish book award winner. Her newest novel, Skin Deep, tells the story of a lying socialite who finds a body lying in her apartment, downs another shot, then goes out to party. And Liz wants to help you push past the tricky start. Hello, my name is Liz Nugent and I am the author of Skin Deep, uh, published by Penguin, out now. Um, my top tip for writing is, first of all, finish the manuscript. Don't um, don't hover over the first 30,000 words for 10 years. Finish it and then don't submit it. Put it in a drawer, set it aside for a month or so, then come back to it and rewrite it. Only when you think it is in tip-top condition should you submit it. That's my tip. You can hear more about Liz and her brand new novel, Skin Deep. It's in the last episode of our show and you can catch up with all of that right now over at writersroutine.com. Let's get back to today's guest then, Tim Marshall, talking about his trilogy of geopolitical books, which started with Prisoners of Geography, all about maths. Then it moved on to Worth Dying For, which is about flags. And his most recent work is Divided, Why We're Living in an Age of Wars. Now, in the second half, we talk a lot about the actual writing of it. You know, how does he make such grand theory and huge concepts which span everyone across the entire world? How does he make those accessible? And we pick things up talking about Prisoners of Geography, uh, his first book in this trilogy, and about that initial idea and why it took him over 20 years to write. Because the first notion of this book, it crept into his mind back in 1993. This moment in the Bosnian War when a Serbian commander explained to me the logic of his violence, which was, if I do this, they will all run away, and everyone else will be scared and they'll run away, and I need that valley because that valley connects to somewhere I'm interested in. And um, that, I, you know, logical violence. People always say mindless violence. But at that level, it isn't. It's thought out. The people carrying out the violence are often mindless-ish, other than enjoying it, which is a has a certain horrible, cold logic, scary logic to it. But the people that are pushing them to do that, that is 
logical violence, uh, based on geography, as, as it often is. And um, that really struck me, and I, and I carried that with me in all the reporting I did, to try to give structure and context to what just looked like you know, things exploding. There was more to it than just exploding things. Um, you know, why are they exploding that thing there? So that was the sort of uh, germ of an idea. Um, it grew over the years. Uh, I, I did read a book which did inspire me called uh, The Revenge of Geography by Robert Kaplan, uh, who's a sort of intellectual writer in, in the United States. Uh, a very different book to mine, uh, and a mo- certainly a much more scholarly work, but the concept being the same of geography being a defining um, event in, in what, um, sorry, factory in, in what actually happens in the world. So that made me read up on people like this Mackinder, this geopoliticist um, um, of around right about the 1900, uh, who, who'd come up with all these these theories, some of which hold true, some of which can be challenged, and then other great geopolitical theorists. And I, um, I just suddenly realised, wow, there's something in this to be able to use this um, thought process to actually try to explain what's going on now. So very simply, then what did you do? How did this quite big idea that's stayed with you for years and years and years then finally get down onto the page? How did you begin your research? How did you know? (laughs) When you're playing with hundreds of years, thousands of Mm. years of history... How do you even know when to how where to start? Ah, because you start with the with the geography. That's the whole thing, and that hasn't changed much. I mean, a border might have changed, but uh, I mean, two classic and easy examples: uh, Russia and India. Russia, uh, flatland in front of it. People keep invading it through that flatland, in particular through a place called Poland. And then you look at the map and you realise that from the Baltic Sea down to the Carpathian Mountains, is a 300-mile gap, and it's flat land. But that flat land starts in France and ends at the Ural Mountains. And through that gap have come the French, the Germans twice, the Swedes, the Lithuanians. They've all come through that gap. And when you know that as a Russian and you're looking back the other way, it's pretty obvious what you're going to do. You're going to try and plug the gap. So, of course, they will move forward. So once you've internalised that concept... Well, just look for the same concept in every single country because it exists in every single country. India and China have only ever had one minor artillery duel, whereas you would have thought these two massive powers would have clashed repeatedly over the centuries. Well, they've got the Himalayas in between them. It's very hard. You know, and you can just apply that to every single country in the world, the geography partially defining what has and will happen. So let's talk about the writing of it then, rather than the theory, I think. You're dealing with, as I say, this big concept, but you want to root it in geography. How much are you thinking about making it accessible to a reader? I'm I'm, I'm talking about tone and voice Um, and simply the words on the page. To be honest with you, I'm not sure I've ever thought that much about writing ever. Um, I think I just do it. Um, But of course, within that, yeah, uh, you have to... I mean, when I was a, again, when I was a TV reporter, uh, I used to shout at the telly. I still do shout at the telly. If somebody says laissez-faire economics, you know, why are you speaking French? <laughs> Most people do not know what laissez-faire economics is or are. So why would you say that into a microphone? 
um, for, a, for a, a general news audience. And again, I find on the news, so many reporters and, and commentators are so bound up in their own areas, and they are experts, they forget to talk human. And they, you know, I mean, the military will sort of say, well, the ABC has gone to the DFO today, and you think, what? Uh, so I was conscious of that, and I was conscious of not using um, diplo-speak, which is a deliberately uh, invented language by the diplomats to make sure that nobody understands what they're talking about. And too many foreign commentators use <coughs> diplo-speak. So I was, I was conscious of that. I was conscious of not using phrases like laissez-faire economics. Um, and, but, but that's about as far as it goes, because I just write possibly in my own voice, pretty much almost as I speak. I mean, then you have to sort of remember to put a full stop in occasionally or whatever. Um, and I'm aware of that. And sometimes I do have to go back and see, oh, I've actually had this rather convoluted. The only other thing that I know I do, unlike when I speak, is that I do try to, I do write in short sentences. And that I learned from a fiction writer, Hemingway. I mean, the master of writing short sentences with up to three levels of meaning in them. I mean, a, a brilliant fiction writer, if you want to know how to get convey a lot of meaning into a short sentence, he's the guy. You say you're not a scholar. No. And we, but we, we were talking earlier about how, you know, some, some students now are, are, are reading your work to get mm. a firmer grip on what it is they are studying. What do you think the point of your books are now? What do they exist to do? Oh, um... Inform, but um, inform at an accessible level. I don't think there's enough of that about. Uh, you know, the three-minute culture, um, people having less and less time. Actually, going back to one of your previous questions, you, you'll be aware of the Guardian long read, and the Times are now doing the weekend essay. And as you know, the podcasts are getting longer. Um this this is a clear sign to me that there is a thirst for context, which takes time. I mean, you know, the less time you have, the more challenging it is to make sure you've got that, put that context in there honestly. So it, it goes back to this thing about this thirst for context. Um, so that is what I seek to do. Um, on a more flippant level, I actually do try to squeeze the occasional joke in uh, jokes not quite the right word but um or amusing story um i mean the guy that nicked the very first olympic flag uh and put it in his suitcase and went back to the states is actually nothing to do with what i was writing about which was identity and nationalism and, and or the meaning of the olympic flag with the five because then the orthodoxy was the five con con continents and that's why there's five rings to represent the five continents but you know as a journalist I know that's a great story because when he was in his 70s he was at this dinner and it came up you know hey no one ever knew what happened and he said I can help you with that <laughs> you know as a journalist you know that quote I can help you with that whoa it's great and it's got a nice ending uh, the next Olympics was in Sydney and they invited him was, they, they worded it beautifully. They invited him to donate, <laughs> donate the first little, in other words, give back the one you nicked. Um, but it was all done really nicely. Now, as a journalist, I know that is a really entertaining 
human story. And so you, I, there's no way I'm not putting that in, even though it's actually got very little to do with identity and nationality and, and the deeper meanings of, of what the flags are. So if you can pepper your, um, y- y- your work with human stories and occasionally, hopefully, a, a touch of humour, uh, I think it really helps to keep people engaged in, in uh, what they're reading. You're someone that has studied nationalism, knows it very well, uh, and you can think rationally about it. How patriotic are you? <laughs> uh, not overly. Um, I'm not nationalistic, and there is a difference. Uh, and, and when patriotism veers and tips over into national, uh, internationalism, it becomes very problematic. I came up, well, actually, you know, you read so much, you sometimes wonder, did I come up with this phrase or did I just read it somewhere and then remember it and think it was mine? But patriotism is a uh, a love of, uh, not a love, an attachment to your country and a respect for others. Now, nationalism is a, 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 an overbearing love for your country and a dislike for others and, and there is a huge difference between those two things um, when I was younger I used to say I wasn't patriotic at all um, I've kind of grown used to the idea that the nation state is uh, another form of tribe and that I think the human condition is tribal doesn't mean we can't try to cooperate and be friends with and even identify with other tribes which I do I am also an internationalist and I've got this weird sort of um, hippie-ish idea that we are all one I mean I I genuinely do believe that um, but I'm also a great believer in understanding just how divided we are within that one Um, I've never really thought of myself as a patriot I I wear the poppy um, with with deep respect Um, I will stand up for the national anthem. Um, I am not so, quite so keen on singing it because I'm, in, you know, I don't care about the royal family uh, if because these things are tied up with patriotism. So I, I respect patriots, and I think that people who loathe this country, like a Brit, you know, says, "Oh, I hate, I hate Britain." I just think they're fooling themselves. Uh, it's a sort of romantic idealism of themselves as standing up against this primitive. Primitism, primitivism. Sorry. Whereas, in fact, um, you got you won the lottery, mate. <laughs> Living here, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you haven't got a responsibility to, to try to be responsible and perhaps assist other areas that are less fortunate. But don't go around thinking that this is the system that's the bad one because it isn't. Right, that's it for this week's writer's routine. Massive thank you to Tim Marshall uh, for letting me come to his lovely house and for taking the time to talk to me all about his work and for showing me round. I really appreciate it. You can find out more about his stuff over at writersroutine.com. While you're there, please do get in touch with the show. Let us know what you think, if you've got any tips, any advice uh, for authors that you want us to chat to. We've had a few of those, by the way, uh, from playwrights to kids' book authors. I promise I'm working on them all for a huge 2019. And remember, the best way to help us out is by leaving a review for Rice's Routine over on the iTunes podcast store. And while you're there, you can pick up Sounds of Christmas, 
the pod aid plan to take on the proper music charts it's out now you can buy it you can stream it get involved help out charity and help us live out a dream and become the actual christmas number one uh, right, a quick bit of admin before we go, because it's coming to Christmas, where everything gets a little bit busy, and we will take time off. The plan for the show for the next few weeks is, hopefully, uh, one more episode next week, pre-Christmas, then we'll have a few weeks off, and then we'll be back on either the 10th or the 11th of January, I reckon, depending on what's going on, uh, how bad our heads are all feeling, and if we can be bothered to go back to work. That should be what's happening. As, as I say, though, uh, in it, it's all up for change. It's all kind of flexible. But keep across the socials, and I'll let you know. You can find us on Twitter, at WritersPod. Instagram is WritersRoutine on there. And you can always find everything over at WritersRoutine.com. So hopefully I'll see you next week uh, with an author who tends to his farm by day and then solves murder mysteries at night. It's all on the way. I'll see you then next week on Writer's Routine. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.